0: Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Nishamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Today, we are very, very fortunate to have Rabbi Evremi Tzipel with us, the Shliach, Chabad Shliach in Utah. Uh, born and raised there, and currently has a Chabadas of his own. Um, he's a father of two, and he's here to share with us the internal journey of the experiences that he's already shared publicly. In uh, February of 2019, he's uh, he went on a podcast with another fellow uh, shliach and rabbi, and um, since then has uh, shared his stories on, on many different platforms, and thank God has been able to help many, so we want to just explore more of the internal journey and try to see how anybody who may have had similar experiences to this, uh, can draw hope from his story. so welcome, Avrami and thank you so much for being here with us.
1: Thank you Maishi. It's really is a pleasure to be here um It's a pleasure to do this face to face you know it's something which you had spoken about the importance of it, and as we're getting started i I, I feel more and more how important that is um. Yeah, it's it's a real honor to be here in the sense that I'm a, a pretty avid listener of, you know, of, of Nishama's podcast. And I think that like a lot of your listeners, um, you know, I think all of us wish and hope on a certain level that this could have been out, you know, five years earlier, 10 years earlier, you know, how, how much that would have impacted us, um, you know, along our own journeys uh, had that had that been a presence. But I think in any event, you know, I consider myself deeply grateful for you know, the resource that you provide for our community and for your listeners. And it really, really is a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, Well, I appreciate that feedback. And um, Baruch Hashem, we've been able to get feedback from others and we see the impact. And uh, I'm also very, very grateful to be a part of this. Can you give anybody who may have not heard your story? So if you haven't heard uh, of Remy's story, I encourage you to look on. There are quite a a few podcasts that he's been on. You can Google it. There's um, things that he's written, things that... uh, where did you, you wrote an article, where did you write it?
1: So I, I didn't write it. It was published in, in the local newspaper in Utah when I, when I testified the first time and, mm-hmm. you know, the entire trial surrounding the events was covered extensively. I, these days, if you Google the story, you can find out every possible detail there there ever is and ever was to know
0: about it. Wow. Okay. So uh, in case anybody is not familiar with it, i just like to bring people in that, um, you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and, um, the trial that he is talking about, that everyone is talking about, is the um, trial that they were pressing charges on the, on correct, the my abusive, abuser, my abuser
1: trial, right? Um, so you know, very briefly, you know, we we had talked about the fact that you know this, you know, pe- people can go ahead and go through the sordid details on their own. Um, I was sexually abused for about ten years, um, from roughly from age eight to eighteen. It was our childhood babysitter; she was in our house every day. Um, it continued after I left home. I went to, I left, I left town after Bar Mitzvah. I was in Cheder and Morristown for a year and Yeshiva and Zal and all the good things. And it would continue when I would come home and it stopped after age 18. Uh, she didn't work for my family anymore at that point. You know, it was just kind of a, a, a logistical thing. My parents just didn't need the help anymore. Me and my siblings were all out of town. And so she stopped being around the house. And as a result of it, the abuse stopped. Uh, and at that point, you know, once I think I was able to turn the page and, you know, and realize that she was in my past at that point, I made a very firm decision, which reinforced the decision that I was making every day whilst it was going on, that I would die rather than tell somebody about it. You know, there there was nothing in my life that I wouldn't do to keep this a secret. Um, And with it being in the past, I had every intention of that status quo staying the same. Um, And that, that was really what I wanted to do. And I got older. I, I finished the yeshiva system. I got into shulichim. I got married. Um, my wife and I moved on shuliches. We had our first kid, and you know, the reality is that these things don't just go away just because you ask them nicely to go away, just because you've decided not to pay them any more attention. They 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 don't stop bothering you, um, and 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 you know, things started piling up, and it really profoundly began to impact me. I think that you know, my son being born was was definitely a factor in a lot of that. Make a very long story short, I started seeing a therapist at you know, the insistence of my parents and my wife, with them not knowing really what was bothering me, just you know, having noticed how off I was. And you know, that began the process of recovery. But he was the first person I told. And yeah, you know, I began to see him regularly and, and really begin the process of, of, of doing the work that had needed be, to be done for almost 20 years at that point. Um, you know, and amongst our conversations came the idea of, of of what to do with the abuse in the sense of, you know, pressing charges, you know, notifying my abuser that I was aware of what had gone on and and wasn't comfortable with it. Uh, I decided to press charges, um, press charges. The first time I testified, I decided to, you know, go public with it as there was, you know, a pretty good reason to believe that it would end up being public knowledge in any event. Um, the story was published in the local paper, as you mentioned, in February of 2019 and, Everything kind of, you know, has has snowballed from there, you know, from a criminal justice standpoint. um, That was at the preliminary hearing, one step of the case, the criminal trial would be November of last year. So just under a year ago at this point, Um, my abuser was found guilty on all charges. And she's off doing, you know, 25 years to life in the Utah State Prison. And for me, uh, more importantly, A, it's given me the ability to heal you know, in the most superlative way possible. You know, having that ability to be public about it has been a gift, but it's also given me the opportunity to to speak out about it. It's given me the opportunity to connect with people who have similar experiences. And, um, you know, I I like how you mentioned earlier, you know, people who have some sort of similar experiences. I think that it's it's opened a lot of conversations regarding, you know, issues that are very similar to this or somewhat similar to this or, or not really similar to this. I think people who go through these sorts of experiences find a common thread, you know, regardless of the specifics of their situation. And it's really, it's opened a part of my life that I never envisioned happening, that I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I would have fought tooth and nail against it happening, but it's given me the opportunity to connect with so many remarkable, brave people and to, you know, share my experiences with them and hear about their experiences. And it's been the, the most incredible journey.
0: Wow. I have so many questions. <laughs> it's a <it's> good <laughs> thing we're here for a while, I guess. I think the first question that I'll ask is actually from one of the last thing you said. Um, Everybody has struggles, all on different levels. Everything is, a lot of it is very personal. Like, what about that middle ground of, like, going through things and keeping it to yourself and, like, completely a secret, burying it, you know, going to the grave with, or completely speaking out publicly? But what about somewhere in the middle? Like, what do you think is productive or like what, what would you answer to those people who say like, why are you going public about it? So
1: here's something which I try to make very clear to people about this topic. I don't think that the path that I've taken is, you know, a lesson for everybody. I don't believe that every survivor of sexual abuse or any sort of, you know, experience like that must go public and must shout it from the rooftops and publicize it to anybody and everybody in their circle. Mm-hmm. I, I felt the need to do it. It started more as a logistical thing. You know, I had wanted to stay confidential and throughout the court proceedings, they're able to guarantee the confidentiality till you testify. Once you testify in open court, no one can guarantee anything. Anybody's able to walk into a courtroom with a, with a camera and a notebook and a recorder. And, you know, so at that point, your 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 privacy is not guaranteed anymore, and so one of the main reasons why I did it beforehand was more to tell the story on my terms. You know, mm-hmm. instead of bits and pieces coming out and the paper, whatever it was, I was going to own it from the jump and say, you know, this mm-hmm. is me; these are my experiences, and and um, you know, you don't hear the story from anybody else. I think that there are so many people out there who the best path for them is not speaking out publicly about it. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people it does work. I think for a lot of people it's just not where they are. I understand that there are people who have situations that are hundreds of times more complex than mine a lot of times the abuse happens within the family mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a it's such a layered issue and so you know a lot of people think that I'm on this you know crusade as it were you know to get everyone to just you know yell it from the rooftops totally not i i acknowledge that everyone has their own path of recovery mm-hmm. and for a lot of people you know dealing with it in their on their own privately they tell a mental health professional, they tell a mashpia, they tell a coach, whoever mm-hmm. it is, is their way to go.
0: Yeah.
1: However, you know, to qualify that answer, I think that telling somebody is a must. Yes. And and, you know, and and acknowledging, you know, for me, I think in my experiences, the most important thing that I've realized about myself and heard from so many others is you have got to realize what happened to you. I and mean, you have got to take the steps to be open to acknowledging and accepting and dealing with what happened to you. Um, And and that I think, you know, that is something which everyone can do and should do. And everyone who's gone through those sorts of experiences really, you know, if they really want to to heal from them, must do is find someone to speak to. Let it be one person, you know, let it be two people, let it, whoever it is, Mm -hmm. but that need to unburden that need to, to find acceptance from another human being in this world, is so crucial to anyone's path of healing and recovery.
0: I'd love to go into the, into the aspect of what it was like when you didn't share it. And, um, I'm sure there are many people, it's just the way it is. You know, there are certain things (sighs) I'm going to avoid trying to talk about myself, but I just, I once came to this realization that, um, you know i was it was already way after i had already gone public with my you know with my struggle and and um, recovery from alcohol and drugs and i was getting compliments and, and and encouragement and there was always like this i still had an inner critic i still had something that was telling me you know if they found out everything about you then you know they you're going to be found out you know i still had that found out thing and as long as i have a part of my life that's still in the dark where that voice lives as long as part of my story or part of my personality or part of my life or my characteristics or my values are somewhere in the dark where that voice lives then um, I'm going to constantly have that part of my life and no matter how much um, love and appreciation and compliments I could receive I'm always going to deflect it either because I think I don't deserve it or I can't handle it but From this perspective, yes, you know, I don't deserve it, you know? Um, So can you tell me a little bit about what it was like before? Like, how do you picture yourself before anything even happened?
1: As as a kid or as an adult aside? You know, whenever I talk about being a kid, I think people, you know, expect the conversation to go a certain way I was I was a pretty happy kid you know mm-hmm. I, I had a pretty you know I look back on my childhood and the totality of all the experiences it was it was pretty great you know uh, obviously it was very unique I grew up in Salt Lake City uh, you know we were we were literally homeschooled you know I know nowadays homeschool has a number of different interpretations we were you know homeschooled in, in the house you know with my parents it was, it was pretty you know basic in that sense. I didn't go to school. I didn't have, you know, as, as weird as it is, as I didn't have a lot of friends. You know, I didn't grow up with, with a lot of kids and a lot of kids my age, a lot of Jewish kids my age, you know, there was the, the, the few kids from Hebrew school and there was, you know, the Mormon kid who lived on the other side of the fence. But, you know, I, I didn't really grow up in a community like that. We went to, you know, to camp every summer and that was the extent of our mm. connection with the outside world. I was, I grew up on Shlichus. Uh, it was the world that I knew. It was the world that I that I loved. I. You know, I was attracted to it from as far back as I can remember, you know, the, there was something that spoke to me as a kid about, you know, living a life of selflessness and living mm-hmm. a life, you know, of, you know, how can you stop another person off the streets to your Shabbos table? You know, can you make yourself sugar to shake with another Yid or put on with another Yid or give out another set of Shabbos candles? Um, those were ideals that I grew up loving. I still love, you know, I, I don't mean to, to, to you know, to speak for that ruefully in the past. Um, but you know that was that was the life that I was living, and I had every hope and expectation one day to live a life life like that on my own. Um, you know, as I look back on it, and this is something which I've really I developed with my therapist, I always craved adulthood. Mm. You know, I was you know, the, shlo- the, shle- the stereotypical shliach's kid, like, you know, who who gives a 14 minute speech by the kiddish, like that just rambles and, and says nothing, but like he, he repeats verbatim what he heard from his morah or his teacher, that that was me. Like, you know, at seven years old, I craved to be something bigger than myself. I craved, you know, to be years ahead of myself. I, I think that looking back now, I can say that, that, you know, those were a lot of the circumstances that really um, set up the grooming process for my abuse. I think my abuser definitely picked up on that and, and was able to kind of use that, you know, to, 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 to set up that sort of situation. But that was my childhood. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was Utah. I mean, you know, that, that was, that was the life we knew everything, every facet of our lives was centered around it. We know what we could do and what we couldn't do. And, and, you know, that that was it. That's that's the life. You know, I I didn't have the context. You know, oh, what if I lived in Kranitz? I could have gotten to a school, or you know, I'd go to camp, and people would, you know, kids my age, kids in my bunk would freak out about, you know, there are no pizza shops. I didn't know, uh, what does that mean? I didn't know a life where like you know, you go with your friends, you go with your parents to get pizza. It was, it was a foreign land to me that I didn't know what to compare it to, and so it was great. It was you know, it was it was something which it was a lifestyle which I embraced. I know a lot of kids grow up on Shluches and they don't, and I did. It was awesome.
0: What do you think? happen in regards to your identity? Like, if this is the type of life and I emulate it and I want to be that, what happened in that process? Like, was that, I wonder if that like took it away and be like, oh my gosh, I can't be that anymore.
1: So I think you hit the nail right on the head. And I think that what people get drawn to living the, the, the bligvul life of a shliach, I think, is something which a lot of people might get the wrong message from it. The Rebbe taught us to be mishuga. To be crazy to not you know to not take certain realities into account you know you go out there and you and you and you put on till until you know till a minute before shia with not with yourself with other people and you know and 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 you 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 make projects even you know you don't have the money in the bank for it and you and you live a life and and, and the Rebbe encouraged this and you live a life of you know I'm bringing Mashiach I'm making <laughs> the, the details are going to sort themselves out and 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 i you know and i and i watch with, with a healthy dose of envy my you know my chaverim and my colleagues my 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 followers chaverim remarkable shluchim people who have done amazing things with that mentality i think that at the same time there's a small carbon of that mentality and i think that mentality sometimes doesn't allow us to take a look inside ourselves and so you know we wake up in the morning and we're really struggling with something we're really Deeply struggling with something, with trauma, with with whatever it is, There's something which is profoundly struggling that we're profoundly struggling with, you know, beyond the healthy amount of you know, wake up having a bad day. We're are shluchim. The altar Rebbe says in Tanya that if you're struggling with atzvas or mirudos, whatever it is, are you
0: saying this was your experience?
1: I, I think that that's what what I was looking forward to. I, I wanted to live, you know, the 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 Khatila riber life, you know, of run around and 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 not really care so much about, like, you know, the small things, like, you know, the, the things that bog you down. Like, mm-hmm. money is not an issue. Time is not an issue. You know, nothing is, gosh, miss is not an issue. And and I think that one of the things that gets dragged into that is mental health.
0: I wonder if that's what you're describing is something that happened years later once you were a shliach. I think
1: so. Yeah. I think so. But I think that it, it really set in from a, from an earlier age, you mm-hmm. know. I, I remember that reality when I was, you know, when I was a bachir masifta. Uh, so, you know, I was away from home for one year of eighth grade, which was a slightly tumultuous year as my first year away from home. In addition to, you know, the abuse side effects, you know, it was the first year in a social setting. There there were a lot of things that I needed to Mm -hmm. figure out, a lot of lessons I needed to learn. And I got to Masifta, and and you know Masifta is it's the beginning of your life. And I think what's what's also about you know being in Masifta it's the first time you're in a school. For me, at least, the only year I had been in school was eighth grade. I came in to the top of the heap. I came to Masifta.
0: Where'd you go to eighth grade in in,
1: in Morristown? The, Rabbi Mark, which was there that year. He, they made a class for a bunch of Shluchim's kids who were bar mitzvah. We boarded in somebody's house. It, it was it was what a, was
0: that like? Just...
1: It was it was funky. I mean, it was you know for for a lot of us it was our first time away from home. For a lot of us it was our first time coming away from home from a completely socially isolated experience and also
0: out of the Haven and the, and the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the safe haven. A hundred percent,
1: a hundred percent. In addition to being out of the safe haven, it was also, it was the first time I was away from my abuser for an extended period of time and 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 learning what that meant to my, you know, to my peace of mind. And wow,
0: so that's like many levels. Yeah, I mean, it was, there's... it was
1: a year of adjustments, you know, in, in, in plain and simple. Plan. it was good. It was, it was meant to be a one year kind of, you know, a filler between bar mitzvah and going to Masifta. Was there any cushion
0: over there for that?
1: We were in someone's house. So it wasn't a dorm. There was, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit more of a homey feel. Uh, which, you know, I, I think was, was very helpful, but it was, it was a tumultuous year for me. I mean, I, I, I remember that quite clearly. There was, there was a lot of adjusting. There was a lot of figuring things out and and learning what the new normal, I, obviously I realized that, you know, I had left home for good. This was the first year of forever. You know, this wasn't going to be a, a one-time thing. This was going to be the new normal. Um, and 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 in a certain sense, you know, also the way we are, you know, a, a year is effectively you know eight months, and you take off, you know, a month for Tishrei and three weeks for Pesach and two weeks for Hanukkah. and you know, I went home for a week for a Simcha. So you know, a, a year is not really. A year. I think Masifta for me was like, you know, really getting into a zone, and just circling back to it, to you know, to to this process. I remember, Masifta was the place where I started trying to drown my issues mm. in obsessive chesedishkeit. So you know, waking up an hour before Seder to learn Chassidus, or you know, or 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 doing all the extracurricular activities for all the wrong reasons, mm. and and but but again, it's bleakful, right? So it's you know, it's a river, and I, I think that's a mentality which you know, which I use to cope with a lot of things from a very early age.
0: And it it, it did offer relief, definitely
1: temporary relief. You know, I. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I have the good fortune of knowing Utah has a tremendously strong recovery community. And I, mm-hmm. I know a lot of, you know, people in the recovery community, whether it's alcoholism or sexualism or, you know, or substance abuse. And, you know, having spoken to them, I remember using Yiddishkeit to take hits, you know. Staying an extra hour after stay to learn a Sicha was a hit. You know, it was, it, was, it was a pain number. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it dulled all the feeling for a moment. Um, you know, making myself crazy to do whatever it was, was a hit. It you know it, it took the edge off for wonder, for an hour.
0: I wonder if that's I don't know. This is just coming to me. If um, there's some sort of um, pursuit of of getting God's approval. For me, no question. For me,
1: I I was on a mission to impress God and the Rebbe, because in a certain sense, these were the only two people that knew what was going on. You know, they, these, were oh the only, these, these were the only these were the only. The only parties to whom I was accountable was God and Lubavitch Rebbe, um, who knew, you know, the Rebbe knew from my writing to him how much self-loathing I had and and, and how low I thought of myself. And as such, I was hoping to, you know, to to rectify that with, you know— Extra serious, or you know, or 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 whatever whatever the project was, that was my efforts to to tip the scale, you know, to 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 put more credit on my side in the in in the minds of the only existences. And I used I used people before re- referencing the neighborhood, but in the mind of the only existences that had an accurate, at least in my mind back then, perspective of who I was. You know, this was kind of me me fighting back against that image of myself by. Mm overloading the side of the scale with, you know, with extra teirah and mitzvahs, and, and that would make me okay. How old were you? Uh, so this is Shalaf Masutah, so, you know, 14, 15, 16, through, yes, through those so years.
0: It's, it's so tragic.
1: It is. It, it, you know, it, it, look, I loved my years in yeshiva. And, and and you know, uh, at, at the effort of trying to sound humble, I did well in yeshiva. I, I succeeded in yeshiva. I, I I enjoyed my years in yeshiva. I, I succeeded academically. I, I I made it through the system, you know, and I look back on it fondly. And, and, you know, where there were there a lot of good things that I ended up doing, you know, to take these hits, yeah, probably, but there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of, of, of making these decisions to do things just, to born, just yeah, to overcompensate, just, you know, out of this effort to, to drown myself in, in something else. So as to change my own perspective of myself.
0: Wow. When I said tragic, I meant like I'm just feeling so much compassion for this innocent 14-year-old who, who has just the wrong idea of what Abister, what Rebbe, and Pretty much. what it's really about, you know? Um, well, I'm just really taken by that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult for me now to look at Bacharim at that age. For me to look at kids, you know, in the eight, nine-year-old phase, the same age that I was when, I, when the abuse started, is not as difficult for me as to see Bar Mitzvah boys, kids starting, you know, their, their Masifta years, because that's where the torment started. You know, that's where the real abuse that I was doing to myself started was, mm-hmm. was in yeshiva, you know, was, was in the bubble, was in the, was in Tim Chitmimim, where, you know, the messages you're getting—good, positive, holy, messages—you know of, of who you're striving to be and 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 and, and what where, what your journey is and you know what you're becoming. I was not in a position to. I, I I was I was getting the wrong messages because what I wasn't I didn't have the capabilities to process that and you know as a result of that I I drowned. I am mean, plain and simple English and and it's oh. difficult for me to watch Bachim in that phase because I remember just that that innocence and that that burning desire to change the status quo whatever that would take
0: what do you mean when you say the status quo the Mm self-perception so you
1: know i mean i i went into the bubble of yeshiva which is a tricky social setting in any in any you know for anybody for any 14 year old kid a boy or girl you know i know my my sisters went away to high school and you know and and it's i'm sure it's it's a it's a tough situation for them as well and I think that you know when you go away especially when you're coming from a Schlier's community and you know you don't have solid social framework to fall back on you're trying to figure out who you are am I a good Boy, am I am I a Ksidish boy? Am I more of a Balabatisha boy? You know, like w- which click do I fit in? You know, am I the Seder Sichas click? Am I the Fabringen click? Am I the Mivzoyim click? Am, am I the basketball clique? You know, who do I? And, and I think that every single Musiftebacher spends years and years and years, you know, kind of moving through those cliques and, and trying to figure out where they land. I moved through those clicks, I went through the same motions as everybody else with this constant, you know, the, the voice you mentioned in my head saying, I'm glad you think you fit in with any of these. Because you don't. You don't fit in with a single one of these. You are just abnormally different. You, you, you've you been through, you, you've done these horrible things. You, you've been through these terrible experiences. Why would you even make the effort to compare yourself to these other bacharim?
0: Just be by yourself, What, 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 Zou, what, what are you, What are you
1: trying to do? And, the, and then there's this other voice, you know, that, that's just struggling to keep its head above water and says, wait, you know, what if I learn two more of my mudrimbalped head? You know, well that, well that, maybe that will finally balance things out. And you do that. and. And that same voice is like, no, sorry, you know, two more, my marimba status quo is still the same. You know, you're, you're still, you're still lousy. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, I'll try something else then. And, and that's the torment that you go through. And, and, and that's really the, the internal struggle that, that, you know, became synonymous with my, with my yeshiva years.
0: Well, it's almost like um, those years became the beginning of the creation of an internal world. That all of a sudden every experience has has two realities. There's what's in the outside and then there's what's in the inside. Absolutely. And the inside becomes bigger and bigger and louder and stronger.
1: No, without question. And, and again, technically, you know, from a, from a very logistical standpoint, there was torment when I was a kid at home. No question. There was incredible torment when I was a kid at home. The issue with being a kid at home is that at that point, seeing my abuser every single day and and, mm. and, and and being in her presence and 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 all of the turmoil that comes from that, it wasn't so much the voices in my own head, you know, that clouded things. Once I was away from my abuser and it was just me in my own head, you know, the the struggle's right here. You know, you don't have to look for outside forces to complicate things. Everything which is crazy is, is within you and and all of the torment is within you nowhere else.
0: It's me. It's not, it's not even her. Exactly.
1: And she's, you know, 1200 miles away. Um, And so, yeah, that, you know, that became, that became the issue of experience.
0: How long, like, what did that, what was the progression of that and where did it lead you to?
1: That one day I I was going, I I have to be honest, there are times now when I think back to those years, especially in conversation with people, you know, who are at a different phase. And I I look back and honestly, I laugh because I think to myself like, you know, and and I say to to my, you know, 19 year old self, map this out for me. Where did you see this going? (laughs) Like, 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 how did you see this ending? I'm curious, like, you know, in your yeah, i was I was you know, I was a very stubborn, you know, you know, kid, teenager, young adult, still am a little bit. and and I would say to myself, you know, okay, you you had figured out how this was all going to go. So, fuck, tell me, how was this all going to go? How did you see this? How did you see yourself getting out of this cycle? And you know, as, as crazy as it sounds, I had convinced myself that that I would finally come to a point where I would have such strong mental determination that I could just bury it. I could bury it in schlichus. I could bury it in, you know, in in being busy with things. You know, I could bury it in any sorts of positive things. And if it, if I would just throw enough, you know, layers of dirt on it, it would stop popping back up. It would just, you know, get down and stay down and that would be it. Like I said, I I laugh now when I think about it, but, you know, because it it sounds so insane. And and, and I know that it's insane because I know that it didn't work. I can say with absolute confidence that it didn't remotely work. But that was, you know, that was the progression, you know. As, as I went through the yeshiva years, you know, you also, you get busier, you know, once you go on Shlichus as a Sezebacher, you know, in addition to learning, you're running programs and you're running around the city and you're, you're it's your first foray into fundraising money and you are, you are, you know, filling this your life. This was in Utah? No, this was in London. I did a year of Shlichus as a Bachar in London. And then we, I went to Smicha and in the middle of the year of Smicha, I became head counselor in a summer camp. And, you know, that was an immersive experience. And, and then shortly after Smicha, I was in 77 for a few months, I got engaged and, and, and I got married and. You know, thank God I was getting engaged because marriage is obviously the cure to all of you know life's diseases and I was gonna you know take full advantage of the cure of marriage which as it turns out marriage is not the cure to any disease in life um, and, and and but I guess there was kind of this expectation that you know the busier I got in life, the more I took on the more I did the more areas that I could expend mental energy the less, space in my head I would have to worry about stuff. So it was, it was, it was a foolproof strategy. And, and, and I guess what I didn't realize in the moment was that you know, these things, they have a permanent hold on a certain amount of emotional and, and mental energy. And regardless of what you're doing in life, they're there to wish you good night every night and good morning every morning. And they're there every second of the day they're and the constant. They're the constant exactly. And and fakir, they're the ones who don't make space for all your other stuff. They're the ones that say, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to we're going to make you absolutely crazy today worrying about, you know, what's going to be with your life and and, and what a horrible person you are. You're not going to have time to go learn with someone. You're not going to have time to go put on film with somebody. And and ultimately, they 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 take their claim. You know, they there's this kid's book, you know, I remember I was actually looking for my, for my kids, you know, about the, the boy who doesn't clean up the mess in his room and the mess gets bigger and, you know, until the mess kicks him out of his own room. Uh, I came across it at my parents house recently and I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is a great example because like, you know, that mess gets bigger and bigger and bigger to, as long as you're not dealing with it till it starts bossing you around. And, and yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the reality of things,
0: so long as we don't as we don't deal with them. hmm 17, 18. Like I'm I'm just wondering, like, okay, you talked about um becoming a head counselor and things like that. What was that like? Did you see, like, if when you're 14, 15, you already have that, those voices coming up and all, you know, all those uh necessary memories and self- Images to push down. When you're getting older and you're already becoming a mashpia, a, a a person who people look up to, what happens to your like? How do you even do that with such an intense self-loathing and 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 negative self-image? I remember
1: being a a, a bacher shliach was it was a difficult year for me because, you know, as as a bacher, I always loved febrangins. I always loved febring. Um, Still do. It was very, very difficult for me to febrang with younger Bacher. You know, so I, w- I went on to a Masifta, to a high school student. In England, everyone's a little younger. So, you know, we're talking like 13, 14, 15 year olds. It was really hard for me to febrang with those Bacher. Because, because in, in a certain sense, I viewed them as so much better off than I was. What do I have to share with these kids? You know, they, they don't want to know me, who I am. They, they, they don't want to know what my life is, is full of. They, they would run from me like the plague. Them and the hanhala and everybody else. But that was hard. Being a head counselor, you know, that, that whole thing, that, that, that was, I think that was a different escape for me. That was, that, was, that was a different kind of drug. That was the need to be as normal as possible. I, I guess I felt like, you know, in addition to all the good things of tiredness that I was doing, every effort that I could take to live as comparable a life to, you know, to my friends was my way of keeping the secret. What were efforts that I was taking to make sure that nobody would ever suspect this Mm -hmm. about me. Um, so you know, I got a good schlichus. I was in a good smicha program. I was I was a head counselor in a reputable Lubavitch overnight camp. You know,
0: was there a lot of effort put into those things Big to make time. sure you get the best? Because Big if time. I don't get the best, right, you know, then there's a chance that I'll be so, found out.
1: So I want to jump ahead for a second. Yeah. I, I want to share this anecdote, and it's it's funny because it happened right outside Crown Heights. It happened in a rental car. Um, you know, before I went totally public, once the criminal justice system had had begun. And once that process had started and, and I and I was starting to get comfortable telling people, there was one Mashbia I needed to tell. There was one Mashbia that had been my Mashbia in Yeshiva and we were extremely close. And if there was one person that I had almost told it was him, like, you know, he he was the person that I got the closest to working up the courage to really share with him what was going on. So let's and, kind of
0: pause you for a second. Sure. What do you think it was that he did that invited you? To even get to that point he,
1: he, he, We had honest and comfortable and open conversations We did not have conversations about The Sefiris and you know, we had, we had conversations about honest Practical day-to-day challenges of being you know, A 17 and 18 year old in You know Real honest conversations So I called him up Called him up and I had to tell him And you know I had a very elaborate way You know I was going to do the whole The word just tumbled out
0: mm-hmm.
1: And was quiet for a full minute on the phone. And after a minute, he says, wow, you were not the bacher I ever expected to have this conversation with. So. And this is somebody who was so close. So close, close right. And, and so I took that as a compliment. Mm. I, 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 I did. Like, you know, he was like, wow, you, really? Because what I took that to mean was Well, you were, you know, you were a good bachern yeshiva. You learned, you daven, you did all the right things. You came to say there. And usually we use sexual abuse as an excuse for someone who's struggling. You know, he can't wake up in the morning. He's struggling. He can't learn. He can't this. Dabach. He was abused as a kid. You know, I took that as a compliment. Looking back, I realized that, that that mentality was something which I was really trying to tap into. Was it was a mentality that that I bought into? If I will be a good bacher, if I'll be a head counselor in camp, no one will think this about me. And so that's the goal. The goal is to live as as normal a life as possible. Because the more normal I can make myself, the less people will expect this about me. The more I'll be able to keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. And and so I did all the things that, you know, make us normal Lubavitcher i I was a head counselor in camp, and I did this, and I did that, and I went on to Zayim. And I did all the things that make us normal, because normal was what I craved. I craved to be normal. I craved to be just another guy in 770. Just another Bachar, just another guy in my circle of friends. Don't notice me. What? Don't notice me. Right, no, and there's, there's no— like. There's nothing unusual about my life. Don't expect there to be anything unusual about my life. I'm a bacher. I wake up in the morning. I do chitas jambam. I do all the good things. I go to, I daven three times a day with a hat and jacket. I'm normal. And and I, and I realized why that was something which I so desired because I spent every waking moment shouting at myself that I wasn't. And, and, and that was, you know, that was a tug of war. And, and I guess what I was hoping for is, you know, look, if I can't convince myself that I'm normal, Let me at least suffice with convincing everybody else. And that was, you know, that was the struggle. That was, and and bear in mind, a lot of this happened after the abuse had finished. You know, I was 20, 21, 22. You know, she wasn't working for our family anymore. That was the constant battle is, you know, just let everybody think that I'm normal. And, you know, I remember the of HaShluchim before I went public so this was the Kinnis of of 2018. I remember sitting at one of the sessions at the Kinnis, There's 2,200 shluchim in a room. And I remember thinking to myself, and, 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 and fair enough, I had healed a significant amount at this point. At this point I'd been in therapy for two years and I was really you know, warming to the idea of who I was. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm probably gonna go public one day. I didn't realize it was gonna be so soon. I'm, I'm probably gonna go public one day and all these people are going to know something about me. And, and, you know, right now I blend in perfectly. I'm another black hat. You know, if, if someone would look at this room from the back and just see, you know, a row of Borsellinos, I'm just another hat in the room. Mm-hmm. And there's gonna come a day where, where that's, I'm not gonna have that ability anymore. And I remember a year later, Last year's kindness, which was a week after trial, sitting in the same room at the same session, and you know the trial had just finished. It was it was still, you know, a pretty hot topic, and and Shliach after Shliach is coming over, you know, to, to give feedback, and they heard like, everyone wanted to talk about it. And I remember like thinking myself, wow, you know, I, I that was a pretty accurate prediction. But I, I guess that's you know, just to bring the conversation to healing for a second, the most important thing that I need to learn in my healing process is. You will never be normal. You will never be just another Borsellino. You will never be just another guy in your group of friends. That's the first thing that you need to accept.
0: So in that moment, when you looked around the room the year before, and you said, you know, I'm not going to be, like, how did you feel towards that?
1: I I think at that point, I still felt a little nervous about it. I didn't feel, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready yet to fully accept myself as different. Um, and, and, and I have to acknowledge, and I acknowledge to myself that that's my own process. I know that that's the work that I need to do is to, is to accept myself that for whatever reason, the path that the Eberster has given me in this world is one
0: that is unusual. I'd like to open up like an inquiry. I'm not asking you to answer, sure. but if anybody's listening, I wonder how many people in that black-headed room also feels like they're different, and maybe they are. And I'm not saying everybody has a mental health sure. issue. I'm not saying that everybody has trauma. Um, I'm just saying I wonder. I wonder how many people. And oh, he he was uh, you know he was sexually abused as a child. I don't have the right to feel different. He has the right to feel different. I want to, I'm just, I'm going to leave that open-ended if you have any feedback and that's fine. But
1: I think, I I think that, well, let let me put it this way. How many people in that room have gone through something in life that marks them as different? A a whole lot more than I think anybody would like to believe. How many are are in a place where they're accepting of that and mindful of that and and, and are aware of that? I think that's a number that grows every day. You know, Mm -hmm. I'd like to look at it, you know, in a glass half full kind of way, but I, I think that's, what so much of this boils down to is, and you know, and, and I, I've had so many conversations with, with young people who are really at the beginning process. And you know, a, a lot of them start with the same question, you know, so what will it take for me to go back to normal? When will I be fixed? When can I just mold in with everybody else?
0: What's the pill? When exactly. will I be fixed? What's how the many book years? to read? Exactly, you know. How many, I, how I, many years of therapy do I, I need? How I many always, sessions? I always just tell
1: them. the story and, and for me, and, we, and my therapist and I joke about it until today. I went to therapy the first time. I wasn't excited about the whole thing.
0: I would love to hear about that too, so, but So I went, to the, I went
1: to therapy the first time and I came into the room um, and I remember in the drive on the way there, I said, okay, I'm doing this. I'm not going to do this halfway. Let me, let me go to the guy, tell him, tell him what I think. Either he'll tell me that it's a non-issue and great, then I'll move on. Or he'll tell me it's an issue and he'll set me straight and I'll move on. But, you know, if I'm already doing this, I shouldn't lie to the guy. You know, I'll go in there. So I went in there and... Looked him straight in the eye, and he was the first human being I ever, you know, I ever said this to. I said, "I think I was sexually abused as a kid," and 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 his reaction is is something I'll leave for another for another conversation. We spoke for an hour. Spoke for an hour is a very informative hour, and, and and I had shared with him in the beginning how I was not excited to be there, and at the end of the hour, I looked up at him and I said, "Okay, doctor, um, I'll be honest with you. You know, I was not excited to be here, but this was pretty good. I have to say, this was this is rather enjoyable." So, um. We're done. It's been an hour. How many more times do you want me to see you? And, 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 and the message that I was sharing with him in that conversation was, okay, you know, all right, bud, what's this going to take? You know, I, I've gone to see a doctor before. I, I, went, I broke my leg. I saw a doctor. He, I needed surgery and some physical therapy and some pain pills or whatever. And he told me it he, should
0: take about three to four and months. And you know what? God bless
1: him. Walk. After six months, I never saw him again. And the nicest guy, I like him a lot. I, I don't plan on having a long-term relationship with him. And frankly, doctor, psychiatrist, I don't plan on having a long-term relationship with you too. Like, so what's, what's the plan over here? And he looked back at me and he smiles and he says, tell you what, why don't you come back next week and we'll take it from there. And, and I think the message that he was sharing with me, you know, that he didn't go and say in so many words was, hold your horses. <laughs> let's, let's see how this goes. I remember that being the toughest part of of. The starting therapy phase, those weeks and those months where that reality really needed to set in and started setting in of this is not knee surgery, my friend. There's no, you know, little procedure, physical therapy. You'll push yourself, you'll do exercises at home, and you will be good to go. You'll be fixed. You know, you'll be back to square one. That will never happen. You will never be that eight-year-old boy who gets a chance to start over. You won't get those years back with a chance to go through them differently. And it's a lot to accept. It's a oh my lot.
0: Gosh. It's a I lot. Mean, you've been working for two decades. Right. And, and, and Two decades working and working and working to just be normal. And, you
1: know, it's funny. People will, people will, you know, give feedback after the time. We speak to say, wow, you know, it's amazing to hear, you know, how far you've come. And I'll point that to people. You know, I have been in therapy now for four and a half years. I'm going on five. I, I was in. In 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 an abusive state of mind, for about fifteen, and so you know if if you think about the amount of th- the amount of time that it takes to undo all of that poison that you feed yourself and all of all of the animosity towards yourself that you digest, you know, there's a ways to go, and and it's and it's a continuous process. But I think you know we, we we've spoke we've we spoke so much about just the desire to be normal. That is the process. Mm-hmm. Is the one of acceptance that, you no, know, no, no, I'm afraid not. You know, the abister in his infinite wisdom has decided that the, the, the life for you, that he had the path that he has set up for you, the, the way that you're going to make an impact in this world the way nobody else can, it's going to be a little bit unusual.
0: That's- what would you say to your younger self when he takes a look at it and, be, and he's like, well, thank you very much, God, for this wonderful, infinite, Wisdom uh based decision to make me this person. I don't want it. Like almost like um I don't know if Mosh Robainu said that at some point, but he's like, like, "I, I didn't choose for this. I don't want this. You know,
1: obviously, this is a journey that comes with a lot of pain, and there's a lot of good that you can accomplish in this world. And sadly, all, all the good that you can accomplish in this world uh, carries with it a tremendous amount of, of, of pain and, and English, anguish and, you know, some tough times. And we wish, you know, why couldn't I have had a say in the matter? You know, why, can't I, why, can, why, why, why couldn't this have happened without the negativity? And, you know, I tell people that is a question that I ask myself often. And I always get perspective whenever I visit a children's hospital. I'm listening. And whenever I go and I have to visit, you know, little kids who, you know, are suffering from any sort of physical illness or parents, you know, uh, uh, as a shliach now, most of the, the people that I'm visiting are parents whose, you know, whose kids are in the hospital. I, I, I get perspective. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. They don't know why their kid is in the pediatric oncology ward. They don't know why their kid Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with Yenamachla. They don't know why. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, take a look around at the world around you. You, know, you want to join the legions of humanity that have gone through pain and suffering, take a number, you know, that, that's, that's our journey. I think the sooner that we accept that, the better off we're going to be. It's a question which the Abishter wants us to ask and never get a good answer to. And, and I think that's so profoundly part of the setup. I think the healthiest thing for me to realize was for, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, if I would know it, I would, I would run for God. I hear it pays very well. You know, I'd want that job. But for some reason, unbeknownst to me, God has this system in place where he wants me to turn to him repeatedly and be like, why? And did it have to, it had to go on for that long? The same thing couldn't happen if the abuse went on for seven years or four years? It had to be 10 years? Why? Ask that question every day and never get a good answer to it. And, and learn to realize that the question is the point not the answer.
0: Please tell me more. So, What do you mean? The question is the point.
1: We go through life looking for answers in every situation. Everything that we go through, every, you know, we're we're on an airplane. Today I flew her on an airplane. It amazes me the amount of cabal cell that you have when you get on an airplane. And the amount of just, you know, we do things because that's what we've been told every time we flew on an airplane for for a number of years. We put our seatbelts on. Why can't your seat be in the reclining position during landing? I was having a good nap today while I was flying over here. And in the middle of the nap, the stewardess made me pick the back of my seat up because we were landing. Is, is, the, is the entire energy of the plane somehow affected because my seat is leaned back? We have Kabbalah sale. You know, we do certain things. And one day you'll read a book and they'll tell you that, you know, the aviation and the... And the we look for answers in life and, 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 and we got frustrated where there's no answers. And then we, we use Kabbalah style, but we resent it. You know, we, we want to understand what's going on. I have found in my experiences that... God, for some reason, desires, envisions the situation where we have this relationship with him that we turn to him every single morning with a question. And he responds to us with a gentle kiss on the forehead and doesn't answer. it. And he wants us to continue that pattern. He wants us to ask. He wants us to try to understand. He wants us to try and, try and see what he's figuring out. And he oftentimes doesn't intend on telling us, ever. But that shouldn't ever dissuade us from asking. Keep on asking, keep on probing, keep on questioning, keep on asking for the abister's mercy, keep on asking for the abister's love and to show you what's going on. And don't let the lack of answers dissuade you.
0: How does that help you on a daily basis in regards to just having a healthy relationship with Hashem and and, um, that despairing, state of like, why, like, how, how do you use this?
1: I I don't mean to sound cynical, but I think that it took me time to realize that I don't have a better option in mind. Hmm. I don't have a better way of doing it. I've tried all my ways. I spend years and years and years trying to get out of the cycle of pain in all of my own ways through all of my own behavior traits, you know, that we've been discussing now for this little bit, drowning them in, in Yiddishkeit, drowning them in getting busy with projects, whatever it is, I, I've tried all that and it didn't work. At some point, being open to the reality that this is what the has in mind for me. This is what my life is going to look like. That's it. There's a lot of pain involved. There's a lot of tears that have been shed, but you know, that's what's going to be that's that's the last and best option that I found, and and I've tried so hard. And you know, I have a good friend who went through similar experiences, and and he says, you know, if you know of someone that has a better plan in mind, let me know because I don't enjoy this one all the time. I want to I want to jump back just a little bit because I think that there's there's an important detail over here that that shouldn't get obscured. Believing that there's a point in all this, believing there's a purpose in all this, and forging a relationship with the Eibistir whilst incorporating that, does not mean ignoring it. Because sadly, I think that in the firm world we know, you know, in the Lubavitch world we know, that there's, there's, there is a mentality of don't worry about it. Have a Are you, you talking about the past? Yeah, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of acknowledging. Yeah, like, it's all good. Have a munna. Have a munna in the, in the sense of, you know, don't, don't think about it. Don't dwell on it. Don't pay it too much mind. Believe. It's okay. It's, it's fine. You know, I, I was once giving a speech to a community, and, I, and someone asked such a, such a good question. They said, you know, what, what's one thing you'd like to set the record straight on about this topic in the from community? And I told them that, you know, just that I had, had a conversation with a child of a shliach who had been abused extensively as, as a kid. Um, now they're in their 20s, and they spoke to their parents about it, and they, you know, they disclosed to their parents for the first time they'd been in therapy for a while. They disclosed to their parents, and their parents' attitude was, "Don't worry, you're still the a kind. You're a beautiful neshama." And I tried to share with this community how beautiful that is and how damaging it is, because effectively what you're saying to the child is, to this now not this child, this young person is, your experiences aren't really that terrible. It's fine. You're a beautiful neshama, which we're so trained in that mentality as shluchim. People come to our chabad house. People come to our house. Rabbi, I'm married to a shiksa and I don't keep kosher and I don't keep shabbat. No, you're a yid. You're a neshama, and 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 that's true. That's what we believe, and that is the reality that we share with them. To say that to somebody who's undergone these experiences as a kid, it, it's all good. I, you're do the rabbi's shluchim and discounts their experiences and you're discounting these experiences to a young person who has spent their lifetime discounting their own experiences and wondering why they just can't be normal like everybody else
0: i i I feel a cry out of like but i don't feel that right i'm not experiencing that
1: and, and what that child needs to hear is wow wow i i can't imagine what you've been through I can't begin to fathom what you've been through. And what you've been through requires attention. It requires medical attention. It requires mental health work. It requires a, a lifetime of work to come back from that. When you are in this frame of mind that you're working on that, you will also realize that you're still the Deb as a kid and you're still a beautiful the and it's all good. It is, that's true. But... But that acceptance of that reality and forging a relationship with Ebishter, notwithstanding that reality, but that reality has to be at the forefront of that relationship. Abishter I want to be clear with you. I'm not okay with what happened to mm-hmm. me. I am not okay with what happened to me. I want you to hear that from me loud and clear. It has brought me remarkable pain. It has brought remarkable pain into the family, of, uh, in, into the life of everyone that I'm associated with. I want to be clear. I am not okay with that, and I want you to know that. And I'm working on repairing this somewhat messed up situation that you dropped into my lap. Notwithstanding that, I'm sure you have a good reason for it. And all I want to do every day is figure out what that reason was.
0: And I still want to have a. Relationship and I still want to have a relationship
1: you. with you because, because somewhere on, in, on some level and some plane, you have justification for this. Y- you are loving. You are merciful. You are accepting. You don't just throw kids to the curb out of callousness and out of a lack of care. Of course you see me. Of course you see what I went through. And the pain that I feel undoubtedly brings you pain. So I got to believe, I've got to believe that you've got something in mind for all of this. And all I want in life is to see that one day. It's all I can hope for. It's all I can wish for is to somehow see how that happens and somehow see why every detail of it Why every detail of it was so crucial.
0: What happens specifically in regards to that when you get to be there for others and be the first person that they talk to or, or be a source of hope for them because they trust you understand them? How does that affect your why me? It's the single
1: greatest thing that you can ask for having been through these experiences, is to, is to see how specifically your experiences play a role in somebody else's life. Healing. Healing. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll share with you a story. When it became clear that I was going to testify and this was going to get out, so I had received advice from a lot of people, find a journalist you can trust, probably in the local community, and tell them your story and have them publish it, you know, in a, in a respectful way in an appropriate way. And so I was very fortunate in the community. I work with young professionals. There was a young woman in the community who was a journalist for the local paper, and she was actually working on in-depth stories. And, and she saw this as a tremendous opportunity to tackle, you know, sexual abuse within the film community. And so, um, I told her my story. When we had our first conversation, we kind of set up, set up the ground rules. She made it very clear to me that she doesn't work for me. She works for the paper. She's writing a piece. I am the subject of her piece. She will interview me. She will publish whatever she sees fit to publish. She will not publish whatever she does not want to publish. And I am not going to edit her article before it goes out. So if I'm comfortable with that arrangement, good. If not, find somebody else. So I, fine. I don't have a better plan in place. So I, I went ahead with the arrangement. So we must, we must have spoken for probably about 10 hours, about 10 hours of recorded footage. Um... The night before, now, the the afternoon that the article was published, that morning I was going to testify in open court in front of my abuser for the first time. So the night before, I was a mess. I was just, I was, it was it was not a happy time. That night she called me. She wanted to fact check her article. So she says, I'm not asking you to edit the article. I'm going to read back some quotes to you. And if if you believe that I have the correct version of the quotes, then the quotes will go in. So you can't pick which quotes go in. These are the quotes that I'm putting in. You tell me if they're good or not, if they're accurate or not, if it's what you said. I said, sure. So she starts reading to me, you know, the article. And and from what she's reading to me, I see how the article is shaped. And then she goes through my childhood and the abuse and the years. And then she starts going through... I, and I remember listening, I couldn't believe that I had said this to her. Some of like the real vulnerable stuff that I had shared with her on the record. And she's reading these quotes to me. I said, Jillian, we spoke for 10 hours. Gave you a lot of material. Why are you putting that in? The article wouldn't be complete without you know my total burying my soul. And she says, let, you remember the ground rules. You're here to fact check the accuracy of the quotes, not to give me your feedback on them. She says, trust me, I think they should go in. So they went in. The feedback that I got in, in in those days after the article came out, specifically from survivors who had read those those quotes where I put your kishkes out there, and they had connected to those, that feedback changed my life because it because it. it it, it reminded me that people don't want to hear, you know, the story in the big picture. I was abused. It was pretty terrible. Now life is good. They, they, people appreciate the vulnerability. People want to hear about those tough times and the turmoil and the real anguish and the real, you know, the, the, the really dark places that you were in because that's what they're looking to connect to.
0: Why and do what, they need to connect to that? Because,
1: because they feel that there's not a single human being alive that has been in those places like they have. You will never understand. No one. How no I felt. one will ever understand how I felt. And when you see those printed, and and you can you can connect with us with a single human being, that is where you see purpose. Did you ever experience that, where you spoke to somebody else? After I had started therapy, um, the first the first place where I really bonded with that in a printed setting was Elizabeth Smart. Mm-hmm. You know, she she obviously our experiences are very different. But, you know, I remember reading her book and I remember, you know, her, her talking about how she felt after, you know, the first time she was raped. And, you know, obviously she comes from a very religious community as well. And, and the words jumped off the page and smacked me across the face. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was mind blowing.
0: Meaning how, I, there's hope like, for me. I'm like, how did,
1: how did she, how does she, how does she know that? How does she know how I feel? And, and, you know. I realized that I realized that that that's the part that people want to connect with. That's the, you know, in, in general, it's been said, it's been documented, it's been published. Sexual abuse is a disease of loneliness because you take a child in their most vulnerable state at their most vulnerable time and you cut them off. Sexual abuse is a process of cutting off the child from their natural support systems. It's a disease of loneliness, which marks survivors with, with, with a degree of loneliness forever and all survivors, of sexual abuse crave is, is the antithesis of loneliness, is connection, is understanding. Somebody else gets what it's like at those dark times. Somebody else knows what goes through my head when I cry myself to sleep at night. Somebody else gets it. And when you can be in a position that your experiences can provide something for somebody else, I think it is the single greatest blessing you can ever hope to attain as a human
0: being. Mm. I identify with that a lot. I mean that's really what brought us here in the sure, first place. Sure, man. I think
1: that's you know, that's that's becoming what the world realizes these days.
0: Um What do you do today? On a daily basis or a weekly basis to maintain, you know, a healthy healthy state of mind and spirit? Still go to therapy regularly. And once I, regularly, once a
1: week. Uh, once a week. Now with Zoom, everything is you know over the phone or whatever. But it's about once a week or every other week.
0: Mm-hmm. And I and
1: I make a point to make that clear. You know, this was you know because a lot of people are like, "Wow, it was great that you went to therapy." And I, and I find it important to set the record. I I didn't went to therapy. I still go to therapy. I'm still in a place where I realize the need that I have to organize things that are that I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I do very regularly is I communicate with God in English. You know, I, I, I try to daven three times a day and I speak to David from the pages of the siddur and I find meaning in that. And oftentimes I will take the opportunity to speak to the almighty God. I, his English is as good as his Hebrew in plain and simple English and, and, and have honest and, and vulnerable conversations with him and share with him exactly what's working for me and what's not working for
0: me and, and what I
1: need in that moment.
0: Well, can you speak to somebody who's scared that they're going to get uh, struck by lightning if they say certain things to God?
1: He hasn't done me in yet. And we've had some pretty honest conversations. Um in Utah, there's a lot of teens, young adults that are, you know, that are that are in Utah for um residential treatment, uh, you know, for wilderness, for, for, yeah, yeah. wilderness and, and then and then later on residential for issues of all kinds. So a few years ago, there was a from kid that was there, and our, our experiences are very, very similar. And he, you know, once they make it to a certain stage, they can come to Chabad. Instead of my father going to visit them, they actually come up to Chabad. He was with us for Rosh Hashanah and we had had some pretty intense and honest conversations and I knew, you know, I knew where he was and, and he came to me and he said, he, he he tossed the monster at me and he says, I can't do it. Can't, can't, I can't, I can't read this nonsense. I can't do it. So I gave him a talus, said, go in there, put your your head on the talus, just speak to the man. Just tell them in English. Just, just tell them what's on your mind. Tell them what you. Shoshana, tell them what you want for the new year. Tell them what you're willing to take upon yourself. Forget the Piyotim. and, and uh, hold, put that aside. Tell the man in plain and simple English what it is you're looking for. And remember that we had. We, we, I said next time we both had very profound Shoshana. You know, for me, it's a very big part of it. I think that you know, every single day I need to be mindful of my reality that. My life is different. There are things that affect me that don't affect most normal people. There are situations that are difficult for me to go through that most people seem to just skate through.
0: Or at least it seems, or at least it seems that way. Off. Yeah, at least
1: it looks like that. I, I'm not I'm not going to shame myself for that. I'm not going to be upset about that. I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to figure that out. I'm, and, and if I need to take time to figure that out, if I need to take space to figure that out, that's what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, I've shared before Right after, I think it was shortly after I started therapy, there was this one very powerful episode that, that, that took place with me in the most you know, un, unexpected of places. I was in a home goods store. I was out getting something for my wife. It was one of these home goods stores where, you know, the aisles are extremely narrow and all the items are three quarters of the way off the shelf and you're bound to knock something over. And sure enough, there I was with pushing my cart and I knocked over a vase and it fell onto the floor and it shattered into a million pieces. And, you know, it was like one of those sound, like the whole store heard it and I'm standing like, oops. And the storm employee walked by the aisle from the other end and like didn't hand me a broom. She walked by, she looked at me, she says, You break it, you bought it. I was like, Thank you. You know, not what I needed to hear in the moment, but you know, if you can get me a broom, I'd love that. Okay. And 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 like the the candor with which she said it, and like, you know, the directness with which she said, it, I remember that night turning to the habister. I said, you know, Hibister, you break it, you bought it you know, you, you put me through something. We, we can all, we can all be mindful of what's going on. You put me oh through something. You got to sort me out now. You got to, you got to, you got to help me figure this thing out. Cause you break it. You bought it.
0: That is so profound.
1: Um, and, 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 and like, it's, it's been something which has really stuck with me since then. Um,
0: yeah. You know what you could have done? You could have gone to bed la- that night and you could have said, Why'd you have to make me knock over that thing? What a, what a mean store owner, you know?
1: And I was out thirty two dollars for it. You know, it was it was it was a nice thing I knocked over too. Yeah, no, it you know, Maishi, it's everything. Everything boils down to perspective. Every single thing boils down to perspective, and and you know the concepts of emuna and betachin that that I've had the opportunity to relate to over the past few years have have become Baruch Hashem, so real and and meaningful, and it's about belief, it's about trust. In, in plain and simple English, it's about, you know, really drilling into yourself that you have the opportunity to be part of something larger than yourself. You have the opportunity to play a role in the universe that's uniquely yours. And that's not just me. That's every single human being alive on God's good earth has that opportunity, has that ability. You need to realize that. You need to tap into that and, and to figure out, you know, how to do that at Excuse me. I think that's that's what everything boils down to. You know, it's what every choice in life, every encounter, boils down to. There's one specific answer that I want to give. You know, you asked about you know the thought processes that I go through daily. I, I was asked recently. Someone asked, "How do you get through your tough days?" And I'm sure that they were probably hoping that I would recommend a book or a podcast or, and, and I said to them brutally, honestly, I said, "I have them. When I have a tough day, I don't." I don't immediately go on the hunt for the end of it. I'm having a tough day. I can't have tough days. I'm worked out. I go to therapy. I, I'm I supposed have, to be normal. Right, I don't have tough days anymore. So quick, let me tap into whatever it is I need to tap into and, and get over this tough day and just, you know, cause in my life, everything is perfect. Every day is wonderful and, and amazing. I, I have tough days. And when I have a tough day, I figure out why I'm having a tough day. I figure out if there's anything I can do to make sure that tomorrow is going to be a better day. And, and I, Allow myself to be a person who has tough days. I, I have accepted that the role I play in this universe is going to be, I'm going to be somebody who has tough days. I I can't I can't escape that. I can't, I can't take a pill to stop having mm-hmm. tough days. And I, and I think that those are those, you know, these are all things that that every thing that we approach in life boils down to. Every, every choice we make, every encounter we have, it's it's about that perspective. And if and if you can find yourself in a place but that perspective sets you up to be okay, then that you, you feel like you have the tools to cope, then that's all you could
0: ask for. That's extremely profound. I just, I don't know. What's coming to mind is this question. I'm not sure what's going to come of it, but why does God have to be part of this whole story? Like almost anybody that I speak to that has especially if they've gone through significant trauma this god has to be part of the picture either i'm trying to push him out or i'm angry with him or i'm trying to appease him or i just i just want to have a relationship with him like why does god have to be part of it on the most basic level
1: from a very technical standpoint I think it's because we don't have a ton of hope in humanity. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that are, you know most people who struggle have in common is that a human being has you know significantly messed them over. Mm-hmm. And as such, you know, to just believe in in humanity and in humans, eh, that's not really, you know, part of our experience. I think why people find God, and this is not a Jewish thing, this is not a Lubavitch thing, you know, these are conversations that I've been fortunate to have with people across the spectrum of religions, you know, and, and God is always an integral part of the conversation, is because I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier. We live, we li- we live and lead secret lives. We are so caught up in these mountains of stuff that we carry within us that the only one who really knows what's going on is a higher power, is someone who can see inside us. And so I think that's why we're so obsessed, you know, which I understand your question, with God, whether good, bad, or ugly, is because he, he's the only person that really gets it. He's the only person there. That, that really— Right. He, he, he was there when the abuse happened. He was there, you know— during the panic attacks. He was there when all of this was going on. He knows what's up. He knows how much we're struggling. You know, obviously a lot of people that have gone through these experiences are not in a place where everyone in their life knows about it. Parents don't know about it. Spouses don't know about it. You know, certainly employers don't know about it, you know? And so People are struggling because you know my boss keeps giving me these tasks and they trigger me and they bother me, but I can't, I can't say anything to him. So we, we feel kind of stuck because I don't you know,
0: open up that can of worms, right? No, I, I, like, and like, it,
1: it would be easier for me just to like to grit my teeth or quit my job. I don't want to go into it with him. So, so, but, but because of that ignorance, there's a certain amount of Rachmanis that we have towards the boss because what he doesn't know better. You know, our parents don't know better. The sibling doesn't know better. The people who keep on putting us in these trying situations. They don't know better. God knows better. Mm. God knows better. And, and, and that's why God so often becomes that punching bag because what are you doing to me? You, you put me through this and then you're going to add, you know, insult to injury on top of that and, and put me through a difficult situation, which you know is challenging for me. You of all people should know that it's challenging for me. And you of all people are the one that put me in that place. Why? It's not enough the abuse. You had to add secondary abuse and, 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 and a third layer of abuse on top of that. Mm-hmm. You had to do that. You know what's going on. You can't you know, plead ignorance over here. I think that that's why we get caught up on it is because, you know, it's, it's, it's the ultimate, everyone realizes there's, there's a force of nature out there that truly knows what we've been through. And, and they're easy to get upset at. They're easy to, you know, to, to lash out at. And ultimately they're, you know, the ones that we can really look to for, for comfort and for solace and more Mm -hmm. than anybody else.
0: Wow. There's so much in that. Um, Any parting words that you'd like to share? Two, if I may. Yeah. If
1: you have gotten, not you, if you the listener have gotten to the end of this podcast, I want to tell you two things. Number one, I know exactly how you feel right now. Because for me, it wasn't podcasts. You know, I, I, I grew up in a little bit of a different age, but for me, there were there were endless nights on the internet, you know, reading about the topic and, 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 and reading inspirational stories and reading them, connecting with them, watching YouTube videos and, and fantasizing, but not, not, not so much like, like fictional fantasy envisioning that this would ever be my life, that I would ever come to a place where there would be any sort of happy ending. And, 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 and I think that, Watching those people, whoever it was, you know, that had somehow crossed that bridge and had gotten to somewhere better only pained me more because, you know, that, never that would never it. happen to me. So if you've gotten to the end of this podcast and you've listened to whatever we've talked about, you know, I want you to know that anything that I have been able to do by the grace of God, any steps that I have taken are not magical. They're not, they're not supernatural. They're readily available to you. And I think that anybody who's motivated to, you know, to put in the work and to make those choices can get, can get to this place. I I firmly believe that. I don't believe that there's anything unique that I've done about that in, in, in that sense. And I think that it's, you know, it really is easily attainable to anybody who's interested in getting to this sort of place. Second of all, second of all, if you're listening to this podcast and you've gotten to the end of it, I want you to know how remarkably brave that makes you. Because if you're listening at this point, there's a good chance that there has been a number of topics that have been brought up that have been challenging for you, that have been triggering for you, that have mm. touched on areas that are really difficult for you. And so often the natural inclination is to turn them off, to run from them like the plague. I would assume that a lot of people probably have listened to this and, you know, have had to pause and take breaks and come back to it. But if you've gotten to the end of it, I want you to know that the, the bravery and the courage that you have to listen to this and to think about these topics critically and to, and to be open to having these conversations to being part of these conversations speaks to incredible bravery on your part. And you should remember that and you should internalize that and you should push that bravery forward and try something else courageous and and, and build on it mm. and see where it takes you. Because I I can't imagine that it's easy, you know, to listen to something like this. And if you have- that's a tremendous, you know, kudos on your part, and keep on keeping on.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. And um, I'm thanking you for me, from the shamas, and from anybody who's listening to who may not be able to get a, a hold of you. We all thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. God bless your wife and your kids and your community. Thank you very much. Good goodbye, share Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Nashamas Podcast. This is Moshe Khanan, wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.